0: don't you just love it when a plan comes together a week after launching the new podcast we're back with another new episode my name's ed and this is the film effect podcast let's do this (laughs) Welcome to Day 331 of the Pandemic. How are things overall? Shout out to everyone who's gotten vaccinated. Best of luck to all you guys. You've got my support. And thank you for all you're doing to help flatten the curve. Um, Today is February 7th, as I'm recording this episode for February 8th, which is tomorrow. It is currently snowing for the second time in a week here in Baltimore. It's actually our first well not this but this past week's snow event was the first snowfall we've really gotten in the last two years because last year it feels like snow just completely skipped over us altogether since snow everywhere else except for the Baltimore area uh, I know Western Maryland got hit Well, they always do because it's the Appalachian Mountains but as far as this neck of the woods yeah, uh twenty twenty was a lot of things, but it wasn't a snowy winter for us. <laughs> so yeah, it's pretty cool seeing this. I love snow, although this particular event that's going on right now, I think is gonna be a bust. They're calling for three to six inches, but it started out with rain and that's never a good thing, so we'll see how this plays out, but I'm always optimistic but this doesn't look promising. But for right now we got some pretty good flakes coming down, so I'm enjoying that for at least. Uh, so yeah, the, what else? So I'm hearing in the news that President Trump has lost his SAG card. He claims he quit, they're claiming it was revoked. I'm leaning more towards the latter. <laughs> um, just, I don't know. And now I'm also hearing that is it is a permanent move. So, you know, not like the man needed it. I don't even know why I'm discussing this. It's just newsworthy. And so be it. And then lastly this past week we unfortunately lost the lives of three celebrities. Uh, Dustin Diamond was the first. he not too long ago announced that he had stage four cancer and unfortunately this past week it took his life and uh, he was pretty young in his mid40s. as a matter of fact, he was he was 44. And it's just tragic, um, regardless of your thoughts and views on the man, on his personal beliefs. Uh, I have my own, but it's still unfortunate. And it's any time this happens, it's just, it's just the worst. Just nothing you can do about it, you know. And if I haven't stressed this enough before, let me say it one more time, crystal clear: fuck cancer. And that's it. And this week, we also lost actor, veteran actors Hal Holbrook and Christopher Plummer, both of which had very big careers in the acting and stage acting world. The great Hal Holbrook, um, he passed away first, and then not even two days later, uh, just a few days ago, was the, the news broke that Christopher Plummer had passed as well. Like I said, both men had huge careers. Uh, Plummer goes back to the 60s being a part of The Sound of Music. Um, Holbrook was a... He had a very predominant stage career first. And then as his later years came around, he dipped his toes into film. And, you know, roles such as The Fog... Today's episode creep show. The firm. Um, what else was he in? Uh The Majestic. Uh, Lincoln. I believe he was also on Sons of Anarchy, a show I've not seen, but I heard he is on the show, amongst other celebrities who make appearances throughout the series. And it yeah. Both all, all three of them, my thoughts go out to their families, friends, and even fans. It's They say death comes in threes, but this is just more of a coincidence and a a tragic one at that. And again, rest in peace, gentlemen. So my weekly recommends this week. Well,
1: what do you recommend?
2: (laughs) What do I recommend? Um. Hmm.
0: I have two for you guys first uh, a couple weeks back I picked up the arrow video 4k release of pitch black and I actually sat down the other day and watched it for the first time in eh, 10 15 years or so I have to say this movie was a fun watch Um, I remember it being average at best it's, 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 I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. because it's, it's not. It has its issues. But overall, this was a fun watch with a fun story, uh, an interesting story, or an original story. One that didn't steer down the predictable path. Uh, I thought there were decisions that were made and people... Things that happened, I didn't see coming. It happened a handful of times in the movie, actually. Even after seeing it, I forgot certain things happened, so I was genuinely surprised when they actually did. And then there's the character, Reddick. Dare I call this movie underrated, but you don't really hear about it too much. I know it spawned the the Riddick franchise, but I feel Chronicles of Riddick and 2013's Reddick get all the praise and talk, whereas Pitch Black is kind of the black sheep of the franchise. And um, and I use that term franchise loosely. I know there's a fourth one coming out and whatnot, but three films, trilogy, we'll call it that for now. But I, I feel this is the strongest of the three. I really like uh, the way they handled the Riddick character. Um, some of the effects were dodgy, but that's going to happen you know it's it's 2000 i mean this thing came out in early 2000 so it was it was probably shot in late 98 early 99 and so the effects aren't going to hold up as well as others but the cg is what it is for its time but i thought the other stuff looked really good the practical effects the uh, creature design and dude for 4k this color the hdr coloring Tops. It really did. Holy hell. So, yeah, three and a half out of five is my rating. Um, definitely a recommend. And the other film, uh, a film that I had not seen until just the other day, and that is 2017's Atomic Blonde with Charlie Theron, John Goodman, and James McAvoy. This was a blast. I really enjoyed the action going on in this movie more than anything else. Uh, when I see that the director had his hand in the making of John Wick, I'm thinking this is going to be another cliché, tiresome, predictable film. It wasn't. The action set pieces were great. The fight choreography was fantastic. Uh, the story itself, it you gotta really follow it to understand it. But if you do, and if you pay, if you pay close enough attention to what's going on. Especially the last 20 minutes, there's a lot going on in this film's finale. It packs a powerful punch. But overall, I enjoyed the hell out of this movie. I actually gave it a 4 out of 5 rating on my letterbox. And so that also is my recommendation for the week. So that is Pitch Black and Atomic Blonde. Two older films, but two very, very good films alright so let's get into the movie of the week I know I mentioned actor Hal Holbrook passing away this past week I've been wanting to do this film since last year's Halloween Horathon, and I figure now I'm going to do the damn thing and so this week I am talking about one of my personal favorite horror films 1982's Creepshow coming soon
1: Jolting Tales of Horror. Creep Show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls, cringe at weird kids, and shiver at the doings of evil doctors this is going to be extremely painful Mr. Vera. Oh. creep show will grab you grow on you and give you the creeps
2: Oh, this is going to be an entirely new experience. Creep Show, the
1: most fun you'll ever have being scared.
0: So, Creep Show premiered May 16th, 1982, at the Cannes Film Festival, before being released upon us on November 10th. 1982 from Warner Brothers Pictures. It stars Tom Atkins, John Lormer, Vivica Lindfers, Ed Harris, Stephen King, Joe King, Leslie Nielsen, Gaylene Ross, Ted Danson, Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbeau, Fritz Weaver, Don Kiefer, and E.G. Marshall. In terms of legacy, Creepshow is a film that has spawned two official sequels in Creepshow's 2 and 3, one unofficial sequel in Tales from the Dark Side the movie, an actual comic book, a planned web series which even had a pilot episode shot with Wilmer Vildorama and Michael Madsen, a Halloween Hard Nights maze at Universal Studios Hollywood, and a successful television series on Shudder with its second season set to be released later on this year. It's a movie that's inspired numerous filmmakers due to its huge impact on the genre ever since its release. It's a rare mainstream horror success story that also featured a plethora of eventual Hollywood who's who. Next year, the film celebrates its 40th anniversary and there's no doubt in my mind that something special is being planned to coincide with the monument. Alright, so my first time seeing this movie, I can't pinpoint the actual time exactly, but this was a movie that like a lot of horror films that I've gotten into that I've been a fan of most of my life. It's just, it comes from watching a lot of television when network and cable TV growing up. Spent a lot of time with my grandparents and there were a lot of rainy days, guys. So I was inside watching a lot of TV while I was doing my writing, my drawing uh, I like to do a lot of things when I was younger to keep occupied if I wasn't doing puzzles or playing games and stuff. So, yeah. Um, but it could have been Channel 54's Nightmare Theater. I saw this for the first time. It could have been USA's Up All Night the first time I saw it. I can't pinpoint the exact time I saw it for the first. But when I was young, it had an impact on me. I remember... I can hold my breath for a very long time I remember the Jordy and the blisters on his fingers Uh, there's a lot of things I remember about this movie and so yeah speaking of let me tell you guys a story about that tell me a story wait like my story? no not your story a story
2: since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper tell me a story I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now, go.
0: So growing up, watching this film, like I said, it was a handful of times, too many times to count, you know, collectively over the years when network and cable TV as a kid so eventually i don't know when it was i was about 11 12 maybe even 13 years old it was later on uh in my life i eventually watched it for the first time on cinemax and i found out that there is actually a fifth segment i never knew about before because apparently when cable tv the television version of this film omits the final segment which is they're creeping up on you and for years seeing this film left and right up and down never knew seen or even heard about this segment until x amount of years later and yeah to say it's different uh i've i i'm very opinionated about this segment and we're going to talk about that more uh later on in this episode but uh Yeah, uh, that's my story about this. It's something small, but it's something regarding the film. Uh, Like I said, uh, it's funny to me. Um, You might get a little chuckle out of it, but yeah. Never knew about the fifth segment until years later. Um, So that being said, let's talk about the film, shall we? Here we go! So for those of you who don't know, Creepshow is divided into five segments plus a book-ended prologue epilogue um the film starts with the great tom atkins he's the father to this boy billy and apparently billy's been reading creep show magazines that he's not supposed to and his father does not like it uh his father's stan like i said played by tom atkins right off the bat first thing i notice is hmm this tom atkins does not look right something's off about him And then a little closer, the mustache is gone. He's got a clean shaved face in this film and a different tone of hair. It's like a blondish, something that I'm not quite used to seeing, something that I've never seen before. This is the only role that I've seen him in where he doesn't have his trademark mustache. Um, Now, when I say that, I mean like prior to the 80s, uh, whatever he had before that, if he had a clean shaved face. I'm not familiar with his work prior to 1980 with The Fog. Um, That being said, it's a different look, and I'm still to this day not quite used to seeing it. So he's yelling and berating his son uh, about reading his magazine. His son talks back to him, and then he hits him because of it. Um, And then after this, he goes downstairs downstairs. And pours himself a mug full of head. That's the one thing I noticed about this damn scene always. Is that the beer that he pours is like 60% head, 40% beer. And he's just pounding it back like, hey man, I'm a fan of the head. So um, he goes and he throws away the magazine after his son um, says that he hates him and hopes he rides in hell. And then we see the creep outside his window. Uh, The creep here sounds and looks really damn scary to this day uh, John Harrison's haunting piano score uh, this this main creep show theme it really adds another layer to the moment and Joe King's smile as he sees it really seals the deal now Billy's played by like I said here Joe King who is Stephen King's son and funny story about the production his Tom Atkins says on the day of this shoot of course, Stephen King, his father, wrote the movie as well, and he showed up on set to watch this scene take place, this, the moment where he strikes him and talks about how nervous he was and wasn't expecting it. But eventually the scene went down. Everything went, you know, as planned. You know, nothing bad went, went down. It's just it threw him off guard. But Atkins, the, Atkins, being the professional that he is, just rolled on through it and knocked the scene out of the park. So, um, yeah, and then it cuts to the trash can with the magazine, and then it turns to an animation form and flips through the pages, and that's when we get our opening credits montage set to Harrison's Pianic, like I said, um, his creep show score, which it's just beautifully eerie. I love this score so much. Um, one thing I want to talk about, because I am going to talk about Harrison later on in this episode, but... I love how every segment in this film has its own theme and I won't be damned if every single theme lives up to its like just remember how I was talking about the legacy of this film like the music is something else that I just remember right off the bat whenever I think about this movie like thinking about it right now talking about it I've got that pianic score in my head playing the creep show theme it's just like I said it's eerily haunting. I love it so much. There's just something beautiful about it. I don't know what it is, but yeah. So we go to our first segment, which is called Father's Day, appropriately. So this is about a family matriarch, uh, about a the woman, Sylvia, who was gathering her family, who consists of her niece and nephew, nurtured and Cass, Cass's husband, Hank, played by Ed Harris, a very young Ed Harris. More on him in a minute. Um, And she's gathering them all there for dinner on the third Sunday of June, of course, which is Father's Day. They gather for dinner every year, and they're all sitting around socializing, waiting for the great Aunt Bedelia to show up. But when she does, the first thing Bedelia does is she goes out back to the gravesite of the family father, Nathan Grantham, who has since passed. And we see in flashback form a very unique comic strip set with the lighting and everything and, and the panels zooming across the screen. Um, it's different. That's what makes this film just stand on its own. And like I said, the flashback form, he's very demeaning and. We find out he's a very shady guy. That's how he got all his money through the fortune, through bootlegging, fraud, extortion, and murder for hire. And Bedelia hates him because of this, because it's driven her insane. The fact that he's just such a piece of shit on top of just knowing where where this family fortune comes from, and it just drives her insane, and she can't stand it. And eventually, one day, we get the infamous, where's my cake, Bedelia? It's Father's Day, and he's just sitting there rocking back and forth. I just love the way John Lormer here is just, it's just—it's—it's uh, it's so iconic. It's just him rocking back and forth, banging his cane, saying, where's my cake, Bedelia? I want my cake. And it drives her insane, and she eventually takes this really cool-looking ashtray and just beats him to death with it. And that's the big family secret, is that she murdered her father. And yeah, so cut back to present day. She's at the grave with a bottle of Jim Bean, kicking back, getting drunk, cursing at his grave, talking about how it was him that drove her that way, to that, it's it's him that drove her to the point where she had to do what she did, and she's just, just calling him out on all of his shit, right there at the grave, just almost done this drink, and By the time that happens, when she's almost finished, um, he just all of a sudden pops out. And let me talk about this shot here because his hand just suddenly pops up out of nowhere. Shouldn't have
1: killed
0: Peter,
1: you know. He was a man, right, a real man. See, everything I wanted, he wanted for me. You stupid bastard. You screwed it all up. You screwed up my mother. You screwed me up. You got me so mad, it drove me crazy. I want
2: my coke, Padelia! My you.
1: you bitch! You called me a bitch! Sylvia fixed it all! Ashtray back in place, chair overturned! Took a fool, Daddy, bad fall. Nobody could catch us, nobody. You taught me, you taught Sylvia, they taught us all. peacefully <slurps>
0: It's this split diapter shot uh, when Nathan's hand suddenly burst out from the grave near Bedelia. Um, one of my favorite shots of the film. I love me some split diapter shots. In the end, I really, really love how this opening story is crafted. It's only about about 15 minutes long, but it never feels rushed or sloppy. The writing and colorful visuals really leave you engaged with what's going on, even if you're a casual fan or someone who hates horror but was forced to watch this movie. Um, The lighting is just amazing here. He comes up. It's this red and blue technique going on. Um, He eventually kills her. um, And then as soon as he does that, we cut back into the house where the family's waiting on Bedelia. Uh, thinking that she's just taking her time being drunk like she does every year uh ed harris now when we cut to this scene before i forgot to mention ed harris is busting a move with his wife and let me tell you this man shakes what his mother gave him he knows how to kick it and so he goes outside by himself and the man's keeping strike anywhere matches in business here i swear to god so he goes out, a little stroll through the backyard, and he gets to the grave. And he sees the bottle of Jim Bean sitting there, still has liquor inside. So he picks the bottle up, shrugs it off, goes to take a drink, but he ends up falling back into this grave. Now, this is a scene that has always stuck with me, because we got this large tombstone that's up above his head, uh, above the grave, and... And every time Ed Harris goes to move, the tombstone moves closer and closer to the edge. Now, this is something that's always played out in my head. It's like, okay, what would I do if I was Ed Harris? You know, it's just, if I was going to move, would I get up and make a really quick movement and jump up real quick and hope to God I make it? Ed Harris don't know what to do. He's just scared in this grave, and he's frozen, and we see in front of the grave... Uh, the corpse of Nathan, and let me talk about his makeup real quick because I forgot to when he first popped out. It's he's just rotten skeletal corpse with like maggots and just a ripped down suit, and he's got this gargled deep voice. Um, it's just so damn scary, and he's doing this little movement with his hands in front of the grave, and like a magician, and he just uh, eventually. It kills over and falls onto poor Ed Harris's head. And one thing I've always noticed is right before the tombstone crushes his head, Ed Harris lets out this, oh! really quick. It's really like you, you feel formed for a second. And then it's just, it's, it's just a horrible death, man. It really is, having your head crushed like that. And so Nathan turns around and then he starts to head towards the house. And something else I've always picked up on is just... Uh, this laugh that he gives. Uh, it's a quick laugh after the tombstone kill that's always gotten to me. Um, and getting back to these, this niece and nephew, Richard and Cass, Richard's played by this guy named Warner Shook who is very over the top in pretty much every scene he's shown in. And I'm starting to think maybe that's why I've never seen him in anything else. Can't really find much of a career on his IMDb. So, yeah. Um, He's kind of a uh, not really feeling this dude, uh, so it's just them two and Sylvia and and the maid. I forgot to mention there's a maid who was at who was present for when Bedelia killed Nathan, and so she knows the secret as well. And she gets killed off screen. Uh, we know this because when Sylvia goes to look for uh, everyone else, because it's after six o'clock, it's getting late, and no one's around. Um, she goes into the kitchen and we see the maid's corpse fall behind the kitchen door. Uh, we see her head pop through the not through, but pop in front of the window. And so the corpse uh, or Nathan <clears throat> grabs her and twists her head, does a 180 with it, and eventually off-screen decapitates her because. The last two, Cass and Richard, go to find out what's going on. And when they enter the kitchen, right before they can go through the door, Nathan pops out with the famous shot from this film of him holding Sylvia's head like a birthday cake with candles and everything still lit, um, sticking out from the decapitated head. And then we get this uh, shocking look from Cass and Richard freeze frame of the three the coloring in the background it's just like I said it's it's one of the most remembered shots from the film I'm
2: scared and it's dark out there
0: look I just want to get another bottle of wine okay
2: please Richard
0: all right come on come on
2: we conserving energy
0: The Father's Day segment. And so it flips to the second story, which is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. So this is the Stephen King story, where it's basically him. It's a one-man show. Um, yes, I do understand there's another actor in here uh, who plays two roles. It's Bingo O'Malley, who's an old stage actor. He plays both the uh, doctor... Um, or no, the, uh, the 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 guy who he goes to at the college and he also plays his father. So <clears throat> Jordy Verrill starts off the bat with a meteor hitting and striking in his backyard. Uh, he lives in an old beatdown house in the middle of nowhere. It's an old it's an old house on a farm in the middle of nowhere. And so he goes to find this meteor that comes that strikes in his backyard <laughs> and he drops the infamous quote, I'll be dipped in shit if that ain't a meteor. And he goes in there, and he sees the meteor, and the first thing the dumbass does is touches it, and of course it burns him, and says "Meteor shit and just one thing I should acknowledge here is the exaggerated faces that Stephen King makes throughout this segment. It just kills me it's like it it's it's its own thing it's it's hilarious, it really is um so. We eventually find out, because we see that when he touched it, it, of course, blistered his finger all up, and of course, he puts it in his mouth to suck on it to make it feel better, I guess, and over time, the next day, it turns into this green, grassy, fuzzy, basically everything he starts to touch, including his tongue, it's all green, and it's all infected, it's all coming from this meteor, um, and he's... Th- I should mention he he threw water on it. And the whole time, he's thinking that he can take this meteor to the local college and get $200. Because we see in this little exaggerated scene where he's imagining taking it and the doctor, I mean, and the professor there just praising him, saying, you know, he gets to name it and all this stuff. And he's like... Two hundred. He offers him a hundred bucks, and he says, "No, I went. I came in with a figure of two hundred in mine Then he gets him the two hundred, and it's a funny, really over-the-top. It's it's kind of the comedic break that this film needs, um, or this it's kind of the comedic break that this film needed, um, and that's going on. And so, once the meteor breaks in half after him throwing water on it, he imagines the same thing, only this time. The, doc, the professor says that he wouldn't even give him two cents for it. He doesn't get out and you know, all this stuff. So, um, yeah, uh, I love how Harrison decided to go with the more comical, old-school television show sort of tone with the music in this segment. Like I said, every segment has its own theme, and this one's kind of a, like an old-school television segment, like I just said. It honestly blends with the story quite well. Um, And yeah, uh, other than that, um, there's a sequence here where Jordy makes a massive screwdriver drink with a poppy vodka. That's all you need sometimes, right? And I appreciate all the small details, such as the sound of the ever-growing plants that we hear crescendoing throughout to make up for not showing it due to the budgetary reasons. And then once we reach the end of the segment, it sounds like a jungle overall, with the sounds continuing as the green spreads towards Castle Rock. So throughout the segment, um, like I said, this green stuff keeps on growing. Everything Jordy touches turns to this green stuff. And the green stuff itself is growing. Because Jordy himself eventually over time becomes a big green creature. And he can't take it no more, says he's sorry. And he takes a shotgun and he blows his head off unfortunately. And there's something said there's something to be said about the dark ending with Jordy eventually killing himself and how it works with the overall comedic story that this particular segment was going for, like I was just talking about. Dare I say it's beautifully poetic in a sense? I mean, I don't know, you guys tell me. So yeah, that wraps up that segment. And so the next segment, which is called Something to Tide You Over. Is probably the most well-known I don't know it's either this or the crate that this is known for the most maybe throw in Father's Day some would probably argue Father's Day but personally I think it's either this or the crate Um, this is the one with Leslie Nielsen Ted Danson and Galien Ross Uh, we got Leslie Nielsen kicking the thing off knocking on Ted Danson's door because um, apparently Ted Danson's character, Harry Wentworth, has been having an affair with Richard Vickers, who is Leslie Nielsen, uh, his wife, who is Galen Ross. These are the only three people in this story I should mention. Um, and it's, there's nothing to it. We You all know this story. Uh, holds him with gunpoint, makes him go to the beach, makes him bury himself up to his head on the beach by the water, and when the tide rises... It essentially will drown them a slow and miserable death um, and then make matters worse uh, Leslie Nielsen who is apparently obsessed with television and technology in general he has a wired a television system through VCRs to record the deaths of both of them but also so they can see each other as they're slowly dying he puts TVs in front of each of them it's or at least Ted Danson we, we never see Gaylene Ross or what happens to her except for a couple shots on the TV that Ted Danson's watching um, they eventually drown Leslie Nielsen's back at his place kicking it wearing the funkiest green velvet tracksuit I've ever seen in my life gotta get me one of those um, about John Harrison's score in this one It's more of a dun dun theme with an orchestrated synthesized background going on. Um, It ties in with it ties in with um, the the slow aquatic zombie paced uh, creature, not creatures, uh, corpses that Ted Danson and Galen Ross come back as. Um, Love the makeup here shout out to Tom Savini who does an incredible job throughout this film with all the makeup effects and all the gore it's all thanks to him Uh, this was two years after Friday the 13th and then it would actually be two years prior to him returning to that franchise with the fourth one Um, but yeah uh, it was also yeah the prowler was also that year 84 so yeah Tom Savini was everywhere all over the 80s um it's just a shame that he doesn't do work anymore because he's... His work... I would love to see what Tom Savini... I mean, he's got his school. He still does stuff. But, like, I would love to see him come back in, like, a big way. Like, the way K&B's still in the business, I would love to see Savini and what he'd be capable of. And if he would develop a team like K&B became. Um, I know K&B is no longer... Kurt, Kurtzman's gone. Kurtzman's out. He left in 2003. According to Berger, he left on good terms. Uh, he, But he's great now. Him and his wife are doing their own thing. Um, and I'm happy for them. Uh, what was I talking about? Um, yeah, Savini. So his makeup in this is just phenomenal. And the scene when Leslie Nielsen shoots a both in the head, uh, the way the bullet holes are kind of like you see the impact but then you see kind of like it has no effect because it just water comes out because like I said they're kind of aquatic from being drowned from being underwater for that long Um, there's also this really awesome shot of Ted dancing underwater uh, prior to him dying with like a glowing red background behind him because everything's blue he's underwater of course but there's this glowing red coming from all around him and his hair is sticking up and it's just a really cool shot. <clears throat> um, and then yeah, so Richard's having a drink and watching the two slowly die at home. He's definitely not Frank Dreblin in this movie. And then, like I said, uh, they get they come back and they force him to go and bury himself as well. Here we come, Richard, go to the
2: beach. I just want
1: you to come
2: to the beach, come with us, come down to the beach.
0: breath for a very long time and that's like the iconic shot from this particular segment and yeah the finale full of Dutch angles by the way (laughs) it's just Dutch angles for the finale Dutch angles all over the place and yeah I've always appreciated the very quick, zany, goofball tune that Harrison's score plays as Richard yells that dialogue before going back into the more serious, eerie synth score to wrap up the segment uh, when he's saying, I can hold my breath for a very, very long time, of course. And yeah, that's exactly how it ends. Um, and it goes into our fourth segment, or if you're or if you're 8-year-old me watching this on cable TV, this would be the final segment. But of course, I know now, a lot older, that of course it's not the final segment. We still have one to go. So that makes this the penultimate segment. So yes, this one is called The Crate, appropriately enough. And this one's special for its own reasons. Uh, One of which, the man of the hour for this episode, Hal Holbrook, the whole reason I'm doing this this week. Uh, It's his segment with... Adrian Barbo and Fritz Weaver and Don Kiefer and Don Kiefer plays the janitor Mike and it starts off with him flipping a coin uh, from mid still from mid freeze frame shot and the quarter he misses the catch and it rolls into it rolls underneath the steps and behind this kind of behind this cage and he unlocks it and he goes back to retrieve his quarter but instead he finds a crate and a crate that says ship to Horlicks University via Julie Carpenter, Arctic Expedition, June 19th, 1834. So <clears throat> immediately the first thing I notice about this crate segment is Harrison's beautifully piano driven score. I can't wait to talk about this man later on in this episode. Uh, so my second favorite Adrian Barbo performance next to Stevie Wayne in the fog, he plays Billy. So annoyingly. It's that she gets under your skin. It's supposed to be cringeworthy. I just take care of Henry. Believe me, he needs it. Just call me Billy. Everybody else does. Those are things that she says more than once. It's like three or four times each she says it throughout this party sequence. Because she's just... Like I said. And then... We see uh, Dexter. Who is um, Henry's cast partner. And she sees him talking to this young girl and she has this sudden change of tone immediately she goes from over the top drunk to serious quiet and cautious and so when henry sees this he approaches him and says i gather you'll be unavailable for chess and that's when dexter gets a phone call from the janitor and it's about the crate and so he goes, while he's doing, while he's attending to this phone call, Henry has this vision that he shoots Wilma, and he shoots her right in the head, and everybody applauds him, and it's, uh, like a Dirty Harry kind of thing with the revolver, and, uh, he shoots her, and then he goes, nothing, Wilma, everything's just fine, and then everyone's applauding, and you hear a guy in the background go, hell of a shot, <laughs> it's just, I miss How I really do, I miss him already, so the, uh, One thing I noticed that uh, the janitor, his cook machine quarter was heads down when he eventually finds it. It's uh, foreshadowing bad luck. So then the uh, janitor here, like I should have mentioned, the, the janitor and Dexter are going underneath the steps, going to get the crate out themselves. Um... The janitor sensing someone or something being inside of the crate truly is scary in a sense. We all know that there's something in there. It's just an unsettling scene altogether. So like I said, they get the crate out. They put it on this table. And the janitor goes to put his arm inside saying there's something in there. And that's when he gets killed in a very gruesome, crazy, batshit, insane way. He gets torn this to shit. the light already, the light immediately turns red. and the reason for that is to get away to get more with through with the NPA uh, because believe me, this is a bloody death. I fucking love the instant changing of the lights to red as the kill begins. He pulls him into the crate then and eats him alive. Uh, it's like I said, it is brutal. Um, speaking of brutal, that ain't got shit compared to the next kill, let me tell you. Because there's this kid Charlie that f- Dexter is running away scared and he runs into this student Charlie and he tells him he needs to get help not to go down. What's Charlie do? He thinks he's crazy and he goes down anyway. And that's when he goes underneath. At this, at this point, we see that the uh, creature, whose name is Fluffy, by the way. Fluffy Pulls himself, uh, fluffy, inside the crate. Goes back underneath the steps. Apparently, he likes it under there. So when Charlie goes to see what's going on, he first gets half his neck bitten, and then he gets his head, his face slashed. So much blood! It is by far the glorious death of this whole entire film. Um, probably one of the goriest deaths ever in a mainstream horror film um it's seriously insane guys uh and meanwhile we got henry he has another vision of killing his wife uh this time i strangling her with his tie and then one thing about hal holbrook in this movie i didn't mention before is that he doesn't need to speak his facial expressions in this film do all the acting for him. That's why he's always been one of the best. I mean, you can't find talent like that with this blood of actors. With this new blood of actors. You just can't. And Billy goes out to her classes while Henry plays chess at home with Ch- with Dexter. Um, by the way, is Billy really going out to her classes while Henry's at home with chess playing chess? Is she? Are we led to believe... I mean nothing's insinuated, but just think about it, you know? Anyway. Knowing the kind of character that she is, I mean do you, I dunno. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Who the fuck cares, right? So yeah, this is uh So seeing the hysterical Dexter with the calm and collective Henry really is a sight. I love how Holbrook plays everything so calmly as he takes in all of Dexter's story in an attempt to help himself out with his marital situation. He knocks Dexter out with a drink and then locks him in the room so he can go to the, to the university himself to check out the situation and clean up everything. Um, meanwhile, all this set to this wonderful piano score that John Harrison for the windman. man. And then um, he leaves a note for Billy. Wilma.
2: I've had to leave in a hurry because of a call from dexter stanley he seems to have gotten himself in a great deal of trouble i'm ashamed to tell you of this but ever since dexter's wife died he's had problems coping with certain young female grad students he's been able to cover up several incidents but this one looks very serious It seems he got a young woman to accompany him to Amberson Hall under false pretenses and then attacked her. When Dex called me, he was barely coherent. He was gibbering with fear and crying, I think.
0: Poor Dex.
2: I tried to get him to tell me what had happened to the girl, but for the most part, he only kept repeating, It's awful, Henry. It's awful. Wilma, could you come out here? I know it's asking a lot, but you're always so clear-headed about these things, and you know how to be firm. I think Dex could use a firmer hand than mine right now, not to mention the girl herself. He said that she had curled up in a dark place and won't come out. I'm sorry to have to ask you to come over to Amberson Hall and help me out, but as you so often say, What would I do without you? What indeed, Henry? What indeed?
0: (laughs) So he lures her into the college and then he gets her to come downstairs to where the crate is. And he says that Dexter is down there and he struck this girl And that she got scared, and she ran underneath the steps, and she needs a female companion to come help the situation out. And he says that he roughed her up pretty bad, so Billy goes in there and does not find the college student, but instead finds Fluffy. Oh,
2: that was great, Henry. That was just great. You think this is a Friday night fight? Huh? Is that what you think? You want to see some real country? Same old Henry, afraid of your own shadow. You know what, Henry? You're a regular barnyard exhibit. Sheep's eyes, chicken guts, piggy friends, and shit for brains. No good at departmental politics. No good at making money. No good at making an impression on anybody. And no good at all in bed. When was the last time you got it up, Henry? Huh? When was the last time you were a man in our bed? Now get out of my way, Henry, or I swear to God you'll be wearing your balls for earrings. And I swear to God if you ever touch. <coughs> 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 Oh, just, just tell it. Call you, Billy.
0: And she's being killed. With right before she gets this famous shot of her looking in terror with the red background. Again. Like everything else in this movie, in comic book fashion, in comic book fashion, and then yeah, she's getting mauled by Fluffy, and Hal's yelling, "Tell it to just call you Billy." And it's just a really funny line that she's being killed, and then we get Hal locking Fluffy back in his crate, and eventually, and then he takes the crate and drives it to this cliff and knock and throws it off and into the river and only thing is fluffy escapes he he throws the crate into the water to drown him the only problem is the crate breaks and fluffy gets out that is how the segment ends and it has always creeped me out no pun intended by the way um yeah, that the whole ending with Fluffy getting away, it's always made me wonder, like, what would happen, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that wraps up that segment. And if you are me in 1988, then you're probably expecting a trash guy played by Tom Savini. But, no, that's not the way this movie's supposed to go because we don't watch movies on cable TV anymore, We don't watch them TV versions at all now, do we? No. We are watching this with all five segments, plus the book-ended epilogue prologue, and that brings us to the final story called They're Creeping Up On You. So I don't know if it's the fact that it follows the longest segment of the film, the 40 minute long crate, or if it's the fact that it involves thousands of cockroaches, which I hate, um... Yeah, this is not my favorite segment at all. This is the one that uh, I was introduced to later on in my life. And since day one, I, I, let me put it this way. Last night, watching this again, I forced myself to watch this segment. But it was the, probably the third or fourth time in its entirety I've seen the segment played out. Because I always, even after seeing it for the first time the last handful of times I've watched this movie I've actually just skipped over this segment altogether it's it's a short segment to begin with it's really do not miss anything it's like 10-15 minutes long um, and yeah it's basically about it's E.G. Marshall um, who plays this just racist cruel rich business mogul who suffers from OCD uh, he pretty much lives like a hermit he has an apartment that's outfitted with electrical locks and surveillance ca- surveillance cameras uh, he's got pretty much zero physical contact to the outside world except via telephone and the several people that he talks to in this segment he's a real piece of shit um, one person we find out had, had a heart attack he's like his competition, the owner or whatever, has a heart attack and dies, and his wife calls him and says it, blames him for it, and he laughs at her and mocks her and and makes fun of her dead husband and shit, and it's like it's fucking, I don't know it's, I, I don't need this in my horror film, I don't need this shit, you know I understand what it's for you know, so we can get to see his comeuppance but The payoff to me isn't worth it because I hate this guy and I hate cockroaches, so this segment is not for me. And yeah, just getting down to it, you know, at the end, there's a power outage that happens because there's a big storm that's going over, so there's a blackout in the city and all of his defenses go down and there's cockroaches everywhere throughout. We see a little bit here and there at the start of the segment, but by the time the, the segment reaches its you know tipping point at the end it is just a pool and i mean a pool of cockroaches he pretty much puts on his flips on his uh emergency power back up and then locks himself in his panic room but his panic room already has an infestation and they are coming in somehow it's never really explained how they get in there they're just there already and then they just all of a sudden grow more and more. And, yeah, the power comes back on. And at the end, all you see is um, him dead because he had a heart attack. <laughs> I forgot to mention that. He had a heart attack and died after we see uh, what he's dealing with in the panic room. And it's too much for him. and he, he just kills over. And so... Um, He's uh he wakes up. No, he don't wake up. I'm sorry. And we cut back to him after the power comes back on and the bugs are all gone. It's just all white. The whole entire apartment is white. All white. And, yeah, it's just his body laying there. And suddenly we see it start to move a little bit and, like, bumps start forming and we see cockroaches start to come out of his skin, his flesh, like they're just coming out of him because we see that... His entire body has been infested with cockroaches from the inside, and now they're coming out. And it's it's some fucking gnarly stuff. It really is. It's the one thing I dig about this segment. And uh, it's actually a lot more brutal than I remember it being. Uh, props to Tom Savini to make that full body for the cockroaches to come out. The full body casting of E.G. Marshall. Um, you know, it's an obvious dummy, but. It's the best-looking obvious dummy that I've seen in 80s films, or one of the best, I should say. Uh, It's great. It's not a knock at all I'm just being observant, that's all. Don't mind me. And, yeah, that's how this segment ends, and then it cuts back to our epilogue, which is circling back to Tom Atkins, Uh, Tom Atkins, but the first thing we see is Tom Savini. Tom Savini, kids. He plays the garbage man, one of the the two garbage guys who were the next morning, uh, picking up the taking out the trash, and he see they stumble upon a creepshow magazine with a voodoo doll uh, clipping cut out, and like a mail in uh, thing is cut out already, so they can't mail anything away to get the voodoo doll, and we cut to Tom is now getting. He's having his breakfast for work, and he's got a pain in his neck. He says that he couldn't sleep because he had, he slept on it wrong or something. And we see his wife is uh, ironing clothes and the shirt. It's one of his shirts. It's missing a piece. It's cut off, and we see that it's actually used for this voodoo doll that little Billy bought from of this magazine ad. And so he has made his dad into a voodoo doll, And he is continuing to strike it with a pin in its neck over and over. To the point where he starts to choke. Now we don't see him actually die. But I mean it's it's pretty obvious where it's heading. Because before we see anything that really happens. We just get a final freeze frame of the creep. uh, His animation uh, and it cuts into the end credits. And yeah. Yeah, well, he's saying I'll teach you to throw away my comic books, and yeah, Atkins is just strung, like holding his neck with both of his hands, and he's he can't breathe, and it's it's left ambiguous, but it's pretty obvious what happens. Like I said, and yeah, that wraps up Creep Show. All right, so let's talk about the box office real quick. In the operational funds box, we will deposit two hundred and fifty thousand American
1: dollars. You take it out. We put more in. I want
0: receipts. Alright, so Creepshow pulled in $5.8 million domestic on its opening weekend, going on to gross $21 million worldwide overall on an $8 million budget. Now Creepshow opened up on, like I said, November 12th in 82. It was in first place. It actually knocked out First Blood out of the top spot. And, uh, E.T. was also out when that came out. An Officer and a Gentleman, The Missionary, Class Reunion, Poltergeist, Pink Floyd the Wall, and Five Days, One Summer. Um, Overall, the second weekend, it went down. It slipped 46% to third place. And then the third week of its release was Thanksgiving weekend. It's really weird they put this movie out two weeks after Halloween. Very, very weird. But anyway, Thanksgiving weekend, it only dropped 17%. It still put in $2.5 million that weekend. Uh, and then the following week, post-Thanksgiving, it dropped 44%. It was still in fifth place again. And then finally, it closed out its fifth week and eighth place, dropping 62%. So there was no sixth week for this film uh, it accrued all of its money in this in this 5-6 week span and uh, like I said I, I think 21 on an 8 million dollar budget is pretty damn good for a horror movie in 1982 especially like I said uh, every, it seems every weekend there was at least 3 or 4 different horror films coming out in the early 80's I mean 1981 overall had like 37 slashers come out in the whole entire year that's almost a slasher film a week that's insane. And we're not talking, like, direct-to-video. I'm talking, like, theatrical releases. It's, it was like that back then. It was fucking crazy. So, yeah. All right, let's talk about the crew. Well, my
1: friend, this is crew. But don't even think about it. You don't look like you could hang, Jemaine.
0: The name's Jamal, and I'll fuck your crew up. Who are Alright, so, Creepshow, as we all know, was directed by George A. Romero. If you don't know who George A. Romero is, how have you made it this far into this episode without stopping it? Because you... you... yeah. Um, Night of the Living Dead, most famously for that. Of course, its sequels, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, um... Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead, Survival of the Dead, a lot of dead movies. Um... Did uh what else is he did? Dark Half, Martin, the Crazies, Monkey Shines, Bruiser. Um, he was behind the television series Tales from the Dark Side. That's kind of another reason why the movie of that series is kind of the unofficial third film of this series. Uh so yeah, George A. Romero uh was yeah. He wanted to pretty much collab with Stephen King. And Stephen King wrote this, of course. Uh, I don't need to rundown Stephen King's work. I'm sure, every, you know, a, anyone can tell you anything about Stephen King. Anyone off the street can name at least two Stephen King books. It's guaranteed. I can almost guarantee that, seriously. He's that popular and well-known to the GP. So this was produced by Richard P. Rubenstein. The music by John Harrison. Should we talk about John Harrison now we can talk about john harrison john harrison first and foremost was the first assistant director of this movie he was pretty much the protege of georgie romero's he had his hand in the production of i'm trying to think what else he was the first assistant director for this as well as Day of the Dead. He did the music for this, Day of the Dead, of course, Tales from the Dark Side of the movie, which he also went on to direct. So, I have a lot to say about that movie, and I did say a lot about that movie last year. Uh, Mad Dad Movie Review, uh, the other podcast that I host with my daughter, we covered that film last year for the Halloween Horathon And... As much as I wanted to talk about this movie, I'm glad that we at least got to talk about that one. Uh, Check that movie... Check that episode out. Uh, And I'm not bullshitting you guys. That's probably my top... One of my top three favorite episodes that I've done of that show is our Tales from the Dark Side episode. I've said it since day one. There's just something about that episode. Her and I have a really good flow going on because some episodes are hit or miss, I have to admit. But that episode in particular was really... I mean, I still go back and listen to it from time to time. I think I've listened to that episode at least three or four times uh, from start to finish um, since I've re- since it was released. Of course, um, it's it was a really good episode, and again, um, check it out. <clears throat> and uh, he doesn't have a big list of credits, but his music, holy shit. So he doesn't like I said he hasn't done everything. He hasn't done, you know, the most movies in the world, but this score I mean, and of course I've I've broken down pretty much every segment score that he did, including the overall theme song of this. I love his style of just everything has its own theme. Everything got to have, instead of following one continuous theme throughout, everything got to have its own. And he did the same thing with Tales from the Dark Side, which I can appreciate for that as well. Um, It's like every story in this film has its own character, has its own identity. And the music plays a big part in that. So yeah, John Harrison, he played a big hand in the making of Creepshow. He... His music is like a character of this film in its own right. And <clears throat> yeah. So cinematography was by Michael Gornick. Who is also Ramirez DP for Martin, Dawn of the Dead, Night Riders. And he actually uh, directed the sequel to Creepshow. He actually went on to direct Creepshow 2. Which, one of these days, maybe I'll get to talk to you guys about that movie. Perhaps we'll do it this October. Um, I don't know. But, he went on to direct that. Um, I love the style. I, I like what he does here. Like I have mentioned, the comic book and approach. Um, the Dutch angles. And the, uh, Father's Day scene. I mean, the, the Dutch angles and the something that Taiji were ever seen. Um nothing groundbreaking but I think he's a fine cinematographer um and then he went on to direct I mean mean it's you know it's Creepshow 2 is not like the almighty best sequel of all time but it's a fun movie to watch and like I said one of these days we'll probably sit down and talk about it I'd love to and uh so yeah and finally edited by Pascal Bubba Paul Hurst, George a. Romero himself, and Michael Spolan. So it, take, it took four people to edit this movie, and I can understand that. It, um, I'm, I'm sure a couple of these people got to have their own segments. I'm sure they, they worked on it as an overall unit, but each person got their own hand and their own segments. And so, yeah, I'm sure they had no issues doing that. And overall, the editing in this movie is great. I think the pacing if overall the, the pacing in this movie is fine The crate for what it is I understand the crate has like double the length of like the second the longest the second longest story of this movie but I think the crate is like the one segment that actually has a detailed story that it has to follow that it's like that plays like a subplot to the actual crate. So that works. So I can understand why that one's so long. So yeah. You're going to go for it, kid.
2: You ain't going to believe this. Well, you used to fit right here. I'd hold you up and say to your mother, this kid's going to be the best kid in the world. This kid's going to be somebody better than anybody ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching. Every day was like a privilege.
0: So we've got ed harris and elizabeth reagan who played hank and cass ironically enough the two of them who plays a couple who married together in this film are also my two young bloods to talk about uh, elizabeth reagan this is the only credit she has to her name she didn't have a career that wanted to do anything um, in fact i couldn't really find anything else on her when i was doing my research. So I don't have much to say about her. All I know is that she, with this being her only credit, she gets a special acknowledgement in this special She gets a special she gets a special acknowledgement in this segment, as does her fellow co-star Ed Harris. Like I said, who plays her husband Hank, and Ed Harris went on to have one of the finest careers one could have. Um... Should I even go down the list? I mean, Paul 13, Truman Show, Pollock, pff, Enemy at the Gates, Beautiful Mind, Glengarry Glen Ross, The Abyss, Right Stuff, Mother, Painting game Gone Maybe Gone, Gone, Snowpiercer, Run All Night. I mean, God damn, the list goes on. History of Violence. Um, and it didn't quite start with this, but Ed Harris's first movie came just three years before this, no, I'm sorry, four years before this, in coma, he played pathologic He played a pathology agent. I'm not even gonna say that. Um, and after that, he did Borderline in 1980. He was also in Romero's previous film, Night Riders, playing the character Billy. And then he did Creepshow in '82. And then it looks like after Creepshow, it took off. He did the right stuff the following year. And it did Under Fire, Hearts in the pla- Places in the Heart, Codename Emerald, Alamo Bay, Jackknife, and then 89 came The Abyss. And then after that, it was off the races. Glengarry Ross, The Firm, Needful Things, Milk Money, well, oh, maybe not Milk Money, Apollo 13, Nixon, Just Cause, Eye for an Eye, The Rock, Absolute Power, The Truman Show, Step Stepmom, that's only the 90s. And then we got Pollock, Waking the Dead, Beautiful Mind, Buffalo Soldiers, Enemy at the Gates, The Hours, Radio, Winter Passing, The History of Violence, Gone Baby Gone, Copy and Beethoven, National Treasure, Book of Secrets, Apollosa. Fuck, man. I mean, this... Jesus. I mean, man on a ledge... Painting gain, snow piercer, sweetwater, face alone, gravity, planes, fire and rescue, really? Huh, interesting. So yeah, Ed Harris. I you get the gist. Um And the thing, all that it's it all started here. Well, it didn't really start here, but it started here, if you know what I mean. <sighs> and for every beginning there is an end. Swan Song.
2: How's that for a swan song?
0: So, the swan song, unfortunately, for this movie is John Lormer, played Nathan Grantham. Passed away five years after the release of this film from cancer. Said it once, I'll say it again. Fuck right off, cancer. So, John Lormer, a lot of older roles, not a lot of huge roles. But he got a lot of play. Man's been acting since 1958, so I'd say in those 30 odd years, he did something. I mean, he had steady work. If you look down his list of credits, The Matchmaker, Career, Peter Gunn, Pollyanna, Ada, Dead Ringer, Tiger Walks, Young Blood Hawk, Kitchen in the Zebra in the Kitchen, Dimension Five, The Sand Pebbles. If He Hollows, Let Him Go, Doctor's Wives, The Legend of Lizzie Borden, Rooster Coburn, and then Creepshow. And it's not that he had a lot to do in this film, but he does have one of the most iconic moments. I'll give him that. Um, I'm not personally familiar with the man's work, um, but I I did know enough about him to, to speak on his... Like I said, 30 year career. And, uh, yeah, it's just unfortunate that, uh, you know, what happened. I mean, he was 79 when he passed away on March 19th, 1986. And to my knowledge, this is, uh, this wasn't his final role, but he does have, it says here that his final film role was on. Beyond the Next Mountain from 1987, a film that doesn't even have a Wikipedia, so who knows? You know, how big of a film that even was, um, but yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, I know he did have uh, a. <clears throat> he was on Star Wars. I mean, he was he was on Star Trek as well. I forgot to mention that. He was on there as uh, Doctor Theodore Haskins, and uh, for a handful of episodes. He also did Perry Mason, Lawman, Rawhide, so he didn't have the biggest film career, but he had a pretty good television career, and um, but again, it's it's still not enough for me to say, oh yeah, I know him, because no, I, I don't. I just know that uh, it was unfortunate that he passed away not long after this film. So, uh, like our other fellow stars in this category, may he rest in peace. So my biggest takeaways...
1: Uh, everything that guy just says is bullshit. Thank-
0: Got a few first and foremost. This needs a 4K release solely for the HDR coloring alone. Like, let's get this movie out on 4K immediately. Like, I know next year's the 40th, so Warner Brothers is probably gonna hold off until then, and that's even if they do it. I mean, for all I know. Scream Factory might keep the rights to the movie. I don't know how long their deal is for it, but they've got that sweet box set out. They've already done the transfer. The 4K transfer's been done. It's just, they put it out on a condensed Blu-ray disc 1080p, and that is unfortunate (laughs) because I would love to see this with all of its HDR glory. I really would, and one day I will. One One day we all will. Believe that. Um, second, this is a rare type of horror movie that doesn't rely on cheap jump scares. I don't know if anyone else has ever thought about this, but that's like the one thing, as we were closing in on the end of the fifth segment last night, I was like, this film doesn't really have that many jump scares. The only one that I can really think of is when Nathan's hand pops out of the ground with Bedelia there, but that's still an effective shot, and I you know, th- there might be a couple sprinkled here and there that I just didn't really catch, but or can't remember at this moment. Um, but yeah, th- this movie does not rely on that, and I love that. I love movies that do that because I think the number one cardinal rule in horror movies, especially these newer PG 13 ones, is that you cannot rely on jump scares, and that is what a lot of these movies are doing. I think it's bullshit. I think it's stealing from the people's pockets. Because I just think you're tricking them into buying a ticket to see something that it's not. It's supposed to be a movie. You're supposed to enjoy it and be entertained. Being scared, yeah. But cheap scares, come on guys. It's cheap. <laughs> also, Creepshow. It's a classy horror film. Now when I say that, it's solely based on this monster cast. I mean, it's just a cast of professional actors, you know a movie like this, take the second film, for example. how the hell the second movie didn't get a cast to even get a to even get a cast that touches even remotely touches this team of of actors is I don't know it's it's never been du. Dupl- it's never been multiplied. It'll never been duplicated. You'll never do it again. you can't. Um, you got Leslie Nielsen and Galen. you've got Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson, Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbo, John Lormer, Vivigal Linvers, Tom Atkins, E.G. Marshall for Christ's sake. You have got a list of class people. So that makes this in turn. A classy film. And my final takeaway. I wish they made more big budget anthology horror films like this. And Trick or Treat more. They're such a blast to watch. They're fun. Some of them. Are not as good as others. Um, I feel like there's been this like. Big like resurgence of anthology films. Over the last decade. That just. Are not good. A lot of them are just kind of low budget, low tier. Uh, I think there was one called Tales of Halloween. We saw the VHS series and even the first one's not even that great of a film in my opinion. Only one of the stories, the Gargoyle one, is like an effective one in my opinion. But as far as the other ones, I haven't even seen the third one. And I think I watched half of the second one and got bored with it. So... Can't really tell you much about that. But, like, I'm talking about real, like, good anthology films. I'm talking about real good anthology stuff like this and Trick or Treat. Because outside of those two films, it, it, what do you got? I mean, I'm not going to include Creepshow. You got Tales from the Dark Side. I'm sorry. This should be... Let me bring the third film in. it. Besides this, Trick or Treat, and Tales from the Dark Side, there's really... You know not not a whole lot of good anthology horror out there and I just wish there was because it's it's something and they're fun to watch you can have you can split your team up of filmmakers Um, everyone can just focus on a 20 minute short film rather than a whole two and a half hour rather than an hour and a half two hour feature length you know it just I just something I want to see just watching this again last night. It's just It's just one of the things I took from after watching it like damn Why don't they make more movies like this seriously? So those are my takeaways, and this is one movement. I wish I could take away. This is my Mulligan moment
2: If you had to do it all over again
0: Would you make the same choices? All right, so my Mulligan moment. If you couldn't already put two and two together talking about it through the movie, eliminate the final segment. It's short enough to where the final runtime would still be around 105 minutes, which is still longer than Creepshow 2 90 minutes and most horror movies in general. This segment is the reason this movie's not five stars to me, and I it it, it kills me all the time cuz I really wish, I genuinely wish I could give this a 5-star rating. I wish I could say, guys, Creepshow is a 5-star rating, 5-star movie in my book. Unfortunately, it's not, and I will never say those words as much as I would love to because of this segment, and it brings it down at least a half notch. The highest I'll ever give this film is 4.5, but I will never give it 5 as long as this is a segment. Unfortunately, we cannot go back in time and take stuff out of movies. (laughs) So, therefore, this... Yeah, it, it this is my big mulligan moment. This is my big mulligan for the movie. Um, this is the one thing I wish I could have. Just take this out and just wave goodbye. Bye-bye. Put E.G. Marshall on something else in this movie, but get him the hell out of this segment. Get this segment the hell out of this movie, and let's move on. Um, is it safe? Is it safe?
1: Yes, it's safe. It's very safe. It's so safe, you wouldn't believe it. Is it safe?
0: No, it's not safe. It's very dangerous. Be careful. All right. So two things regarding this this week's is it safe? Creepshow. Its wraparound story involves an abusive father. And his 78 year old son. So, you know, if that's something that you've experienced in your lifetime, um, maybe that's not the best thing to be watching. And then it's actually, it works because it's the epilogue and the prologue for the film. So you can always just go around it. But yeah, this is more or less just to just call that out. Um, watching it here, as much as I love Tom Atkins. Um, I fucking loathe his character in this movie. Um, as much joking as I was doing about the care about him himself, you know that's just that's Atkins, that's the man, the myth, the legend. As for his character in this movie, he's a real piece of shit. He's a real he's a real motherfucker. This Stan Hopkins, um, and yeah, so I I I just I condemn that kind of shit. Um, you know any any person any father who puts his hands on his, his children you know I I wish I could fucking meet you in an alleyway my friend seriously I fucking hate people like that I hate reading about that shit I hate when I see that shit in real life it's just not for me and I don't want it in my fucking horror movie <laughs> All right so my last word my final thoughts on Creepshow um what more. Can I honestly say that has not already been said in this special episode? Um, I guess I'll take this moment to first and foremost talk about how Holbrook, like I said before, his, his presence in this movie is a strong one. His character Henry puts up with a lot of shit and does a lot of tremendous acting through his facial expressions. Doesn't have a whole lot of verbal acting going on. The whole crate segment is the most detailed of them all. And uh, it's like I said, that and something that tied you over are the two that I'd say are go back and forth with the most popular. Um, Overall, everyone's awesome in this. Uh, Ted Danson does a fine job, Ed Harris, Stephen King, even Stephen King Leslie Nielsen. It's funny seeing Leslie Nielsen in a serious role. I do know that his original background involves like... Serious, more dramatic roles, but hey, to me he'll always be Frank Chapman. Okay, so <clears throat> to put a bow on that, this is up there as one of my all-time favorite horror movies, and I wish the guy, like I said, I could give this a five-star rating so badly, but we all know why I can't. Um, but yeah, moving past that, finally, <laughs> and this movie, you know, I enjoy watching it. Every six to eight months. I enjoy talking about it. Like I am right now with you guys. I enjoy quoting it with my fellow horror fans. Um, cannot wait for the, the inevitable 4K release to come out. Uh, my TV is just begging for that compressed Blu-ray disc. You know, it looks good. It looks damn good. Especially compared to the original Blu-ray release that Warner Brothers put out. But... It ain't true 4K, and it ain't got HDR10+, plus. so my money's on either this Halloween season or some point next year for the 40th. This will eventually see 4K, and I will be there day one. Bet your bottom dollar I will be there day one for that disc. Um, that being said, this movie is sponsored by your local Caldor department store, where it's 1982 and you too can purchase a nice brand new television to rival one of Leslie Nielsen's. Stock up on the ultimate supply of bug repellent or pick up the latest issue of Creepshow Magazine on your way to checkout. It's the Caldor Thanksgiving Holiday Feast,
1: Friday from 7am to 12 noon only. Take 15% off everything in the store. Take home tourbusters like an RCA forehead VCR 17849. Proctor Silex 12-Cup Coffee Maker 764, Hudson Valley 6-Foot Christmas Tree 1359, RCA Personal CD Player 7479, Junior Jet Streamer Skates 1495, 10-Channel Cordless Phone 4419, only on Friday, only 5 hours from 7 a.m. to 12, only at Caldor.
0: That's going to put a bell on everything, guys, for this episode to all of my listeners so far. If you're still tuning in to this episode, thank you so much. I cannot thank you enough. Thanks for all the support. It means the world to me. I'm really trying to go somewhere with this show. So any or all support would mean the world. Um, Spread the word. Let's make this something. Seriously, guys, I want you to be backers with me. Let's do something with this. The film effect movement is real. Uh, Next week, I will be back talking about 2019's Uncut Gems from the Sathy Brothers this is one of my favorite Adam Sandler movies it is a movie that is so fucking good that I do understand isn't the most universally loved film but we'll talk about that next week I got a lot to say about that movie and i um, really looking forward to diving into that one with you guys um Thank you so much for checking out this episode, though. Um, real quick, I'm on Facebook.com at the Film Effect Podcast, and I'm on Instagram.com at the Film Effect Podcast. Um, check us out on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Breaker. Uh, we're on pretty much every platform at this point. Uh, by the time this episode drops, I will have been on pretty much every major platform that I can think of. I even just got uploaded to iHeartRadio. So, if you can't find us, let me know. I have an email, thefilmeffectpodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or requests, hit me up there. Or, um, yeah, anything else, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Or you can drop me a message on the Facebook or Instagram accounts. Other than that, guys, until next week with Uncut Gems, my name is Ed, and this has been the Film Effect Podcast. Take care.